Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's always nice to talk about new medications for conditions that have been, generally speaking in the past, hard to treat. Jonathan Meyer is a psychiatrist at the University of California in San Diego, and he graciously joins us today to explain these new medications. Thank you, sir, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. These two new medications, they are here to help treat tardive dyskinesia and psychoses associated with Parkinson's disease. Let's start with the discussion of tardive dyskinesia. It's often referred to as a drug-induced movement disorder. The condition seems not to be talked about so much anymore as it was a couple years ago, but apparently it still has a real clinical concern. Please give us a brief explanation of what tardive dyskinesia is and why it is still a concern. Tardive dyskinesia fits under the large umbrella of abnormal movement disorders. And dyskinesia just simply refers to excessive movement. So these are people who have choreiform or athetotic movements and occasionally with some dystonic components. It should be known that there are other forms of dyskinesia. For example, if I give you too much dopamine agonist therapy to manage your Parkinson's disease, I could also give you dyskinesia on top of that. And those who have seen Michael J. Fox do interviews in prior years before he got better control over his symptoms, you would see a lot of dyskinesia when he would take his Parkinson's disease medication. There are also people who develop spontaneous dyskinesias, meaning we haven't done anything to them and simply as an age-related function, uh, they will develop dyskinesia on their own, usually older folks. But what tardive dyskinesia is with excessive dopamine blockade due to either psychiatric medications or a medicine used for GI motility called Reglan or metoclopramide, the chronic exposure to dopamine blockade causes a problem with either receptor upregulation or supersensitivity so that now these receptors become so much more sensitive to the dopamine signal and you get essentially excessive dopamine neurotransmission due to receptor supersensitivity and that's why they get the dyskinesia. The problem, as many people know, is that in many patients, stopping the offending medication did not cause reversibility. And that's why in the past it was such a source of concern during antipsychotic therapy and it's why it's still a source of concern today. We think the newer medicines like the atypical antipsychotics had a lower risk and I think that is true, but the difference is we're giving them to maybe five times as many people as we used to in the past. So the individual drug risk may be lower, but the overall population exposure is much greater, and that's why it's still a relevant concern. Is there an age associated, an age limit, or it's a period of time when they tend to be more sensitive? Yeah, so really it's older age which presents the highest risk group for tardive dyskinesia. So if you look at studies published by Dilip Jesty here at UCSD in the late 90s, you put an older population, 65 and above, on one milligram of haloperidol, then the rate of TD in the first year might be as high as 20 percent. On the other hand, for a comparable group given a milligram of risperidone, it was much, much lower. But those rates are still much higher than we're seeing in the younger population. So that's really the biggest age factor. Younger age is, in fact, protective, but those people tend to get more dystonic reactions and other more acute forms of extrapyramidal syndrome. 
we are pleased that coming August 30th, we are now going to have two medications to address tardive dyskinesia. What are these medicines? What do they do? How do they work? So, as many of you know, the literature on tardive dyskinesia is littered with numerous failed trials of lots of stuff. I mean, everything in the pharmacopoeia has been thrown at this problem, and it has generally been ineffective, including things such as vitamin E, other antioxidants, and all sorts of other things which I won't go into. The one mechanism which has been proven to be effective is what's called VMAT2 inhibition. So VMAT2 or vesicular monoamine transporter type 2 is a protein which is present in the neurons which make neurotransmitters. And its job in the presynaptic neuron is to package the neurotransmitter into the vesicle. And so VMAT2 packages dopamine as well as serotonin and norepinephrine into the presynaptic vesicle. So there was this drug that was invented in the 1950s called tetrabenazine. And tetrabenazine was created based upon the idea that this other molecule called reserpine seemed to actually work as an antipsychotic, but nobody could tolerate it. Well, it turns out that the reason nobody could tolerate reserpine is that it not only inhibits the VMAT2, which is located almost exclusively in the central nervous system, reserpine also inhibited VMAT2. VMAT1, which is located in the periphery, especially in peripheral neurons. And so they get all these effects of monoamine depletion in the periphery, causing profound orthostasis and other types of adverse effects. And VMAT2 inhibition in the form of tetrabenazine had been shown over the decades to be effective for tardive dyskinesia. The problem with tetrabenazine is there's some issues with tolerability and half-life. It was approved in the United States finally in 2008 under the brand name of Xenazine for the treatment of chorea associated with Huntington's disease. But the dosing is very cumbersome. It's TID. If you're going above a certain dose, you had to have 2D6 genotyping. There was concerns about the tolerability. So a couple of companies said, maybe Maybe there's a way we can do this better. Maybe there's a way we can improve on the kinetics and tolerability of tetrabenazine. So the first way one company came up with a solution was to look at the complicated metabolism of tetrabenazine, find the one active metabolite that's doing most of the heavy lifting, and they reverse engineered that. And so the medicine that you take in the form of valbenazine actually itself has a very weak affinity for VMAT2, but it gets converted to one metabolite which is inactive and another one which is highly active at VMAT2. The nice thing about taking valbenazine is that because it gets slowly converted to the active metabolite, it is only once a day, number one, and it is also very well tolerated. If you look at the dropout rates in the clinical trials, they are about 10%, meaning 90% completed, and this was comparable to placebo. So another solution to the kinetic puzzle of tetrabenazine was created by substituting deuterium for certain hydrogen atom in the tetrabenazine molecule. So deuterium is a stable, non-toxic, non-radioactive isotope. It's in your body right now as we speak, and it's naturally occurring. But what happens is if you substitute deuterium for certain hydrogen atoms, that carbon-deuterium bond is eight times stronger than the carbon-hydrogen bond. So what this does is make the molecule more resistant to metabolism. So by creating deuterated form of tetrabenazine, or do tetrabenazine, you have a drug with much better kinetic properties than tetrabenazine. So do tetrabenazine has already been approved in April under the trade name of Ofstato, and its original indication was for Huntington's disease Korea. It will also 
will be approved on August 30th, most certainly by the FDA, for the second indication of tardive dyskinesia. The nice thing is we will have two solutions to the problem, both of which are very effective, both of which are very well tolerated, both of which have similar mechanisms. And really the issue going forward to the clinicians will be which of them will I have greater access to based upon Medicaid or, or other sorts of considerations. Is it possible for us, or am I overextending this, to say that perhaps if we could measure the VMAT2, that would give us a predictor of someone's possible sensitivity to tardive dyskinesia? Yeah, people have looked at a lot of genetic predictors of tardive dyskinesia, and VMAT2 hasn't really, polymorphisms there have emerged in some studies, but not a lot. Most of the literature tends to point to other contributors, such as polymorphisms of dopamine receptors, and also things having to do with oxygen of stress. The reason we did these studies of vitamin E back in the day was the hypothesis that oxidative stress might be something which contributes to the risk of TD, independent, of course, of the drug exposure itself. But a lot of these studies have not been replicated and certainly at this point are not ready for prime time. Right now, we don't have good predictors of who will respond except for one clinical variable, that if you look at the clinical trial, that the people who tended to perhaps get a bit more response are those who are no longer an anti psychotic. And so we had a large chunk of people in these studies, for example, who had bipolar disorders, and they seemed to me at times perhaps get a bit more response and a bit more sustained response. We generally think of TD as an irreversible problem, and that seemed to be true for the most part in these studies of both valbenazine and dutetrabenazine, meaning even when people were on the medication for 48 weeks, once you stopped it, they tended to revert back to what their baseline had been prior to treatment. But that was not universally true. There was a subgroup of people, and it tended to be folks who were no longer in medicine, who actually looked like maybe things had gotten better and they didn't need the medicine anymore. What about the group of people who, because of their psychiatric conditions, continue to need the antipsychotic? Can they take both these medicines with their antipsychotic? They can, and the majority of the people in these clinical trials did have psychotic spectrum disorders, predominantly schizophrenia, and were on their antipsychotics throughout. Most importantly, companies gathered a large amount of data on changes in mood and changes in movement disorders and other aspects of tolerability, and there were no clinically significant differences in mood or in aspects of their psychotic symptomatology. The concern about mood really emanates from some of the early studies of tetrabenazine and Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease has very high rates of suicide, and so there's some concern there, but that has not been borne out in the treatment of people with these types of agents who do not have Huntington's disease. What about issues such as lactation, other dopamine downstream side effects that we don't like? Yeah, so there is a small and measurable impact on serum prolactin, but not to the extent where we have seen prolactin-related adverse effects. So the idea that we're manipulating dopamine neurotransmission in this very fine manner, we can see the biological effect not only in the change in the movement disorder symptoms, but also measurably in very small differences in prolactin, which can be measured but appear not to be clinically significant. Subject for a lot more discussion, but I want to jump to the other drug. Statistics show that between 40 and 60% of patients who develop Parkinson's disease are also known to develop a non-motor psychiatric condition, most particularly a psychotic disorder. And historically, this has been extremely difficult to treat as well. But we now have a medication. Again, same question as before. Take us on a tour, please. So 
what happens in Parkinson's disease, as people understood from their training, is you do lose the dopamine neurons in the nigrostriatal pathway. But this is only one part of the disease, and we're starting to recognize that much like dementia, the Alzheimer type, where they initially lose cholinergic neurons and then eventually lose everything else, the same is true with Parkinson's disease. So, for example, why do Parkinson's disease patients have high rates of depression? Because they lose noradrenergic neurons in the locus ceruleus. Why do Parkinson's disease patients often develop cognitive impairment? Because they lose cholinergic neurons. Our hypothesis for why Parkinson's disease patients might become psychotic focuses on the serotonin neuron. What we know from early molecules synthesized for other purposes is that agents such as LSD can cause certain types of psychotic symptoms and hallucinations, and their mechanism of action is focused very heavily on serotonin 2A agonism. So the idea in Parkinson's disease psychosis is that because of the increasing burden of Lewy bodies, in the dorsal raphe, people start to lose their serotonergic neurons and they get upregulation and supersensitivity. There's those terms again. And this serotonin 2A supersensitivity seems to be at the root for the development of the psychosis. Now, there are likely downstream effects on dopamine, but of course, the problem in people with Parkinson's disease is you cannot give them dopamine blockers. They've already lost so much of their dopamine neurotransmission in the motor acid of the basal ganglia that even if we think eventually that's where the problem might lie, we simply cannot manipulate that system very effectively because patients simply will not tolerate it. So the idea is that if we can somehow manipulate serotonin 2A, then perhaps we can mitigate some of their psychotic symptoms and also not cause worsening of the motor symptoms. And the root of all of this came from early studies of clozapine in Parkinson's disease psychosis. And and what was interesting is that they would treat these people with very tiny doses, six and a quarter, 12 and a half, 25 milligrams, maybe a little bit more, and a lot of people would get better. And so people wondered, well, why is that? When you give clozapine in these tiny doses, its most prominent property besides anticholinergic and antihistaminic stuff you don't want was serotonin 2A antagonism. And it was that insight that led people to try this molecule, Pimavanserin, for Parkinson's disease psychosis. And as people begin to read about it, they're going to be introduced to a term that perhaps many do not understand or is new to them. It's called the selective serotonin inverse agonist. What's that? Okay, so selective refers to the fact that pimavanserin binds with extremely high affinity to serotonin 2A. Its KI is 0.087. It's, it's an order of magnitude more potent than anything we have out there. It has somewhat lesser affinity for serotonin 2C, which we think in this context is not contributing to anything, both good or, or bad. It has no affinity for any dopamine receptors, histamine, muscarinic, adrenergic, anything else. So that is the selectivity. So what's an inverse agonist? When we look at what are called G-protein-coupled receptors. So these are not ion channels. These are G-protein-coupled receptors. Even when there's no, in this case, serotonin around, there's actually a very low level of activity there. It's called basal or constitutive activity. It's very low. It's measurable. So if I give you just a serotonin 2A antagonist, I block the action of serotonin, which is fine, but there'll still be this very low level of basal activity. An inverse agonist actually shuts off the tap completely. So it reduces this level of basal activity completely down to zero. So that's the difference between an antagonist and an inverse agonist. And pimavanserin is an inverse agonist.
It's been around now for a relatively short period of time in terms of the life cycle of medications. Do we see any potential long-term side effects developing because Parkinson's is a for-life disorder? Yeah, so so the company which developed Pemavancerin actually has some patients who've been on the medication now for seven years because they participated in the early, early clinical trials. And so we have not seen any long-term adverse effects. The one thing which I, I think some are concerned about simply has to do with the biological reality of Parkinson's disease. They will continue to develop more and more Lewy body burden and will continue over time to lose more serotonergic neurons. So there may be a point for some individuals individuals where simply they'll have too much serotonin to a upregulation for the dose of pemavancerin we're allowed to give, and I'll just say it that way. And so, you know, there's a dose which was approved by the FDA, but there may be a point where some people, because of disease progression, that dose may not be insufficient. So that's really the biggest issue. Of course, if you look at the package insert, there are some other adverse effects and issues which people should be aware of. For example, there's a very small but measurable impact on the QT interval of about 5 to 8 milliseconds seconds on average. For most people, not clinically significant, but they do advise caution if combining it with other medications that might prolong the QT interval. But in terms of long-term adverse effects, it just hasn't been seen. People may ask if the psychosis associated with Parkinson's disease is something inherent to native Parkinson's disease. And the question, I guess, really is that many of the people who are treated for Parkinson's disease, they get L-DOPA and other medications that modulate the dopamine system. So is the psychosis that we're seeing, is that a result of the treatment that we're giving them, or is it inherent in Parkinson's all by itself? So I actually wrote a book chapter on this in the late 90s, at which time this entity was still off often referred to as levodopa psychosis. But one thing that has become clear over the last 15 years is that it is inherent to the disease itself. It's the loss of these serotonergic neurons that causes upregulation of serotonin 2A. That being said, though, there can be a contribution of dopamine agonist therapy. And so often the movement disorder neurologist is seeing people who are starting to develop early symptoms. And these early symptoms are not always fully formed visual hallucinations. They may be what's called passage and presence phenomena. Passage is, I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye, so it's an illusion. I, didn't, I wasn't sure that it was actually there, but I keep seeing these things moving in my periphery, although when I look, they're not there. And presence phenomena is literally the feeling that somebody's staring over my shoulder. So often what happens is that people start to develop these early symptoms. The neurologist will try, if possible, to dial down the dopamine agonist therapy. Sometimes people simply will not tolerate it because of rhetoric reasons, but if they can't, it might buy them a little bit of time. But I think the point I want to make here is that it's an irreversible progressive problem. So even if you buy a few months by manipulating the dopamine agonist, at some point it's going to get worse. It's, it's a one-way street, and it's due to disease progression. Interesting. It sounds like it's something that's going to warrant a great deal of study. One of the questions that has come up is the condition, it's off-label, but Tourette syndrome. Very hard to treat. People generally require a lot of antipsychotic medication historically held off. Might this have a benefit in helping with the Tourette's patients? 
It's interesting. You know, the company is pursuing several other lines of research to see what might be the possibilities, one of which is actually psychosis in patients with Alzheimer's dementia. Again, people for whom the traditional medicines, although they may work for psychosis, have a big mortality warning, as everybody knows. They actually are also looking at this medication for treatment-resistant depression, utilizing not the serotonin 2A property, but the serotonin 2C property. And 2C antagonists or inverse agonists when added onto S. SSRIs seem to make the antidepressant better. But for now, I haven't seen any interest in the Tourette's that may be that we need to do something a little bit more directly on the dopamine system to make those aspects of the disease better. That being said, though, there is a class of medicines which are being studied for Tourette's, and it's the ones we talked about at the very beginning. And so the people who make valbenazine are now after pursuing studies in Tourette's on the idea that maybe we can dial down that dopamine signal through some VMAT2 inhibition, yet not cause all the other adverse effects which were seen previously from using dopamine D2 antagonists. The percentage of folks with Parkinson's who develop these psychoses is higher than the percentage of folks on antipsychotics who develop tardive dyskinesia. That being said, nonetheless, do you think that there is any value down the road that we should begin to think about perhaps using these things preventively? Well, again, the proportion of people who develop psychosis in Parkinson's disease is large, especially if they live long enough. But there's no evidence that using these medications prophylactically will prevent anything. The idea is that if they're going to lose the serotonin neurons, they'll lose them, and then at that point, you'll start to see the evidence. I think more than anything, what the availability of Pimavantrin has stimulated is better screening. Often, the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease were given the backseat because it was all focused on the rigidity and the tremor and the akinesia and whatnot. But what we recognize is that the non-motor symptoms are really what makes people miserable. And so it's the psychosis, it's the depression, it's the cognitive impairment, it's the urogenital symptom, it's the REM behavior disorder, it's all these other things. And I think now that we actually have an effective FDA-approved treatment for Parkinson's disease psychosis, I think what we're seeing is people screening earlier and earlier for this because at times either it wouldn't be asked at all or patients would be embarrassed. You know, a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease did not understand that psychosis was part of the disorder and they would start to see things and be very embarrassed. Or they would be worried that if I say I'm starting to see cats walking around the apartment, we don't have cats, someone's going to put me away. And so now that there's greater awareness of how prevalent this problem is and that it can exist really at any stage of the disease, that People are now screening and trying to let patients know it's okay to talk about this stuff because we now have a treatment which we didn't in the past. Nice. And I've seen it since my career in psychiatry. It's comforting. We're not, we're not where we want to be yet, but we're getting closer and closer each day. We need to reiterate that if you are listening to this and it reflects an issue in yourself or in someone that you know, speak to your doctor. You, you need to raise the question. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's fair to say no drug works for everybody. The proportion of people who responded to Pimavans in the clinical trials was about 75%, but that, that isn't everybody. And there certainly will be some people for whom other options might be needed, including clozapine. It's nice to at least have something which is FDA approved, and, and it's certainly a place to start. And the great thing is tolerability, particularly no impact on the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which was always a concern with traditional antipsychotic therapy. So, and 
certainly for tardive dyskinesia, literally did have nothing. The idea that we actually have two well-tolerated approved medicines for tardive dyskinesia really is a boon to these people who would suffer again for many years with an irreversible problem. So true. I thank you very much. Jonathan Meyer is a psychiatrist at the University of California in San Diego. Sir, I thank you so much for joining us. You've taken us through a lot of information very quickly, but succinctly. And again, all I can do is say thank you. My pleasure.